Louder! Welcome back to Lights, Camera, Exploitation, your guide to exploitive cinema. This is the pod boss, TJ Bowser, and joining me as always is my doppelganger, Kangabanga from Down Under, Mr. Brody Kane. Howdy, motherfuckers. And joining us as always is Mr. Slick Nick. How y'all doing? Today, we have a doozy of an episode. But first, it's time for your slice of life. Brody, how goes it? Oh, it all goes well, Mr. Bowser, down in my neck of the motherfucking woods. Um... What did I get up to this week? Um, I went and watched the new Batman film. It was fucking amazing. I loved every single bit of it. Little, little, little bits of, uh, I, I, I guess you could say there were some details throughout the film that I could nitpick, but overall, it was extremely fucking fantastic. I mean, Batterson is my new favorite Batman. Big call, but I fucking stand by it. Um, Drop Dead Fred. Came this week from Vinegar Syndrome. Fucking Chuck that bad boy on motherfucker last night, and um, so good. It was fu- oh so fucking good. So much nostalgia just slapped me right in the fucking head. Uh yeah, amazing watch, and it comes with a fuck ton of special features, which was great to watch. Mm-hmm. And then what else? Oh, I finally bit the bullet and purchased the Mangler. From ah, Arrow Films, yeah. the old t- t- Toby Hooper fucking classic with uh, Robert Englund in it. Um, it's just is that one of them Arrow? films I saw as a, yes okay. at the Arrow release. Yep, one of them films I saw as a kid, and there's this one scene in particular that just fucked me up hard. It is so full on that I reckon even you guys would fucking cringe on it. So, but other than that, Imagine. yeah, watch Bad Dreams, awesome fucking film in my opinion. Uh, what about you, Slick Nick? What'd you get up to, mate? Not a ton. Um, it's finally warming back up around here. I say that and it's supposed to snow on Monday. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but it actually finally got warm enough this week to like go outside and do things. Uh, so I actually haven't spent a ton of time inside. Mm-hmm. Um, that that I have spent in, I've actually mostly just spent practicing uh, music just because, I don't know, felt like it. Uh, it's it's fun. It's, it's nice. Feels good to do. Um, watched this fine film. Uh, spent a couple days doing research for this one, actually, because it ended up being particularly interesting. Was this your first viewing? Um, yes, this was the first time I've seen this. Okay. And uh, I did enjoy it. Um, <laughs> good, good. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I mean, really, that was about it. I have, I've actually mostly just spent time either outside, not at home, uh, because we've spent the past few weeks just snowed in. Mm. Um, yeah. So what about you, TJ? What you been up to? Well, I got some movies in from Vincent. Uh, my February order came and like, like Brody, I watched Drop Dead Fred and that film has aged like a fine wine. Truly yeah. exquisite experience. Uh, can't wait to watch it again. It's, oh yeah, it's awesome. I watched Censor and The Last Matinee. Today, I also got those from Vincent. Awesome, awesome modern horror films. They are both foreign films, one from Britain and one's in Spanish. Uh, I think it was filmed in Uruguay. But yeah, truly, truly awesome 
films. Both have some uh, Jalo influence there and some Argento lighting stuff going on. It's it's pretty rad, and I think Censor uh, has some Lynch vibes going on just because the ending's mm. kind of open ended, and we know how that goes. But yeah, just watching tons of film and editing podcast as I normally am and getting stuff out for Project Louder. But we are here to talk about this week's film, and this week's film is Bad Dreams from 1988. As night falls, a new day begins. A day of unity. Sometimes a single moment of madness. Our love will never die can last a lifetime. Come to me, Cynthia. You belong with us. Forever. She was in a coma for over 13 years. Everyone she knew was killed in the fire. And sometimes your worst nightmares begin the moment you wake up. Who's alive? I'm waiting, Cynthia. Keep your promise and join us. Or I'll take someone in your place. He wants us all with him. You're all gonna die. Now. survive bad dreams take a stab at it march 25th and that is from director andrew fleming who also directed the craft in 1996 dick in 1999 and nancy drew in 2007 writers andrew fleming and stephen e de souza who did the screenplay Cinematographer Alexander Grzynski, who also did Tremors in 1990, The Craft in 1996, and A Medea Christmas in 2013. Music by Jay Ferguson, who's also in the rock band Spirit, who worked on The Terminator in 1984, Johnny B. Good in 1988, and Driven in 1996. Are you familiar with that band, Nick? Spirit? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, They're quite a bit older, I think. Um, If I remember correctly, Spirit is the band that sued Led Zeppelin for the intro of Stairway to Heaven, sounding a lot like one of their songs. Yeah. I think that's it. I might be wrong, but I think that's it. Your Google machines, people. Art director, A. Rosalind Crew, who also did Down Twisted in 1987, Captain America in 1990, and Into the Sun in 1991. Production design, Ivro Crisante, who also did The Howling in 1981, Child's Play 2 in 1990, and Pumpkinhead 2 Bloodwings in 1993. Producers, Galen Hurd and Ginny Nugent. Special effects, Roger George and Lise Romanoff, who also worked on Humanoids from the Deep in 1980, Repo Man in 1984, Munchies in 1987, and Night of the Demon 
Demons in 1988. This week's film had a budget of $4.5 million United States, and it starred Jennifer Rubin as Cynthia, who was also in A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors in 1987, we'll talk about that later, The Crusher in 1993, <laughs> and Screamers in 1995. Bruce Abbott as Dr. Alex Carmen, who starred in Reanimator in 1985 and Inner Zone in 1989. Richard Lynch as Harris, who starred in Savage John in 1985, Transfers 2 in 1991, and last season's pick, Scanner Cop in 1994. Dean Cameron as Ralph, who was also in Summer School in 1987, and Sleep With Me in 1994. Harris Eulin as Dr. Beresford, who also is in Scarface, 1983, Ghostbusters 2, 1989, and Training Day in 2001. Susan Barnes as Connie, who starred in Zombie High in 1987, Speed in 1994, the scariest film ever made, according to Brody, and of course, its sequel, Speed 2, Cruise Control, in 1997. Petrified. (laughs) I don't even want to watch Speed 2. I'm shit scared. John Scott Clow as Victor, who also was in Fast Forward 1985, Gross Anatomy in 1989, and Phantoms in 1998. And last but not leastly, Elizabeth Daly as Lana, who starred in Pee-wee's Big Adventure in 1985, The Powderpuff Girls in 1998-2004 as the voice of Buttercup, and Happy Feet in 2009, Slickless Nicholas. In the 70s, a sinister cult called Unity Fields commits mass suicide in a horrific manner by fire at the behest of its psychopathic leader, Harris. Only one young woman named Cynthia survives to tell the tale. And now, 13 years later, Cynthia is having grim reminders of the mass suicide as people around her begin to die one at a time. Cynthia finds out quickly that the ghost of Harris is back to claim his love child. Awards! Didn't find any, but it's a damn fine film. Okay, boys, let's get physical! This week's release is from Shout Factory, and it's a double feature, and it features this film, Bad Dreams, and Visiting Hour, rated R, and it was dropped on February 18th, 2014, and it features a commentary with writer-director Andrew Fleming, interviews with actors Jennifer Rubin, Bruce Abbott, and Dean Cameron, the special effects of Bad Dreams, behind the scenes of Bad Dreams, and the original ending, theatrical trailer, and its region A lock, currently available from Scheme Factory from $19.97 or Amazon for $17.99. Does anybody else own this? I do, but I own it with 88 films. Oh. But it's potentially has the same special features, even the commentary with the director. Mm-hmm. So basically this right here, the, the only thing that 88 films doesn't have is actually probably the behind the scenes and the special effects of Bad Dreams. But oh. it, like it has the original ending and everything else. So Okay, fair enough. So if for you uh, Region B folks, 88 films has a release. Okay, so additional information, boys, take it away. So uh, speaking of other releases, actually, uh, the first thing that I – uh, kind of looked into. So in addition to the original video uh, release, the VHS one and the current Shout Factory release, as well as the 88 films one that Brody mentioned, there also exists, I found an out of print region one DVD release from April 2006 by uh, Anchor Bay Entertainment. What? Uh, yeah, that's stars. That's like the TV channel stars. That's their subsidiary. Mm. So this release of the movie includes it's pretty much all the same features as the Shout Factory release now but with the inclusion i saw in the features of the screenplay for the movie like it 
actually had it listed as a feature whenever I found the listings for it. Uh, given it's no longer in print, you can only really find secondhand copies. I found some there on eBay and Amazon for between about $18, upwards of 60 and that listing said it was down from 120 bucks. What? And the $18 release, you might think, oh, well, that's that's equivalent to the Scream Factory or the Amazon one. No, that was not including shipping. And that was like nine bucks. It was like more like $30 to get that. I tried to get a copy of it because I was like, oh, there's a DVD one. Oh, it might be the same price. Oh, it's out of print. Oh, it's really expensive. <laughs> In a world where DVD costs more than Blu-ray. <laughs> but uh and i think the the art is in full color like the original vhs as opposed uh the blu-ray one is black and white isn't it what is the blu-ray art like the front art it's not uh, on my blu-ray you can turn it inside and out it has that irreversible fucking cover okay. and yes so the front cover of yeah, it is black and white, one side, color the other. So Mine split because okay. it's with visiting hours, remember? Mm, yeah, that was the, yeah. the cover that I saw for the visiting hours split one. Uh, the visiting hours one was in color, but the Bad Dreams one was black and white. It was just a listing at least. So yeah. ah. so basically, um, well, the information that I was able to get was from the 88 films, um, special features, and it's a, obviously an interview with director Andrew Fleming, uh, and he discusses the huge, uh, the huge change between film school and this debut film so he goes on to say it was my first movie it was like graduate school for me sure the executives from 20th century fox would like to think of their investment as my grad as my grad school project but i learned everything technical about filmmaking throughout this process and i learned that in the end the important thing is the words the actors are saying the actors who are saying them trying to create a convincing world and i learned that some of my favorite parts of bad dreams are the funniest parts i'd actually been more of a comedy director Director than a horror director, but I feel like the two are twined in a way. So actually, kind of expanding on that one a little bit, um, actor Dean Cameron that played Ralph had actually never done a horror movie before Bad Dreams that I was able to find anyway, uh, having previously been a TV actor and a comedian, uh, and he had previously appeared in shows like Spencer, uh, Fast Times, and the comedy movie Summer School the year beforehand. Uh, and as such, he would improvise a large part of his dialogue uh, when on set just for comedic relief because it was apparently what he was used to doing. Uh, after Bad Dreams, it looked like he did mainly return to comedy. He was in Alf, Psych, It's Always Sunny, uh, but he did return to horror later. He was in American Horror Story uh, back in 2012, but that was the only other horror anything I could find that he did. Fucking A. Okay, now I, yeah. You said Fast Times. Was that the TV show Fast Times? Yeah, Fast Times. Didn't he play Spicoli? Um, on that? Yep, Jeff Spicoli. Okay, I was about to say, I think he did I? It was a minute when I looked at it. I just saw that he was in Fast Times. I was like, oh, <laughs> and he appeared in Alf. Yes, he was in Alf huh. as well. And then uh, Psych, one of my friend's favorite TV shows of all time. My, uh, the Twin Peaks episodes, one of my favorites of Psych. So funny. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we have producers Gail Hood and Ginny Nugent. Uh, produce a very wide and impressive variety of projects with Heard producing the first three Terminator films, Tremors, which also Nugent produced, uh, The Abyss, Dante's Peak, The Punisher from 2004, Aliens, Hulk from 2003, The Incredible Hulk from 2008, Raising Kane, a TJ Bowser favourite, and Chopping Mall. Nugent has also produced several successful television shows such as the HBO miniseries, Chernobyl, fucking amazing show if you have not mm -hmm. seen it, Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. Catherine the Great, and Mike Judge presents Tales from the Tour Bus. Oh, hell yeah. 
Hell yeah. I got so hyped. I got so hyped. I saw a chopping mall on there. <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, Back to that that 88 films release. Uh, Andrew, uh, talking about writing a horror film, uh, he says, when I was at university, three friends and I wanted to write a horror film. We actually didn't know anything about The Nightmare on Elm Street, especially before it became a thing. So the inspiration came from our love with the 60s. Uh, and also, I when I grew up in California as a child, the Manson family murders were ah. something powerful. Yeah, I kind of got that vibe as well. <laughs> and also saying that, how do you not know what the fuck A Nightmare on Elm Street is, especially when this film come out in 1988. I mean, it's only spawned, what, three sequels and there was one being made that year, which was Dream Warriors, I'm pretty sure. It came out the year before? Just saying. Dream Warriors came out the year before this, 87. Yeah. Ah. Well, there you go. How do you not know what that is? Anywho. So, we have Andrew talking about getting the film off the ground. Uh, The very first meeting I had with my agent, I said I had written this script and he said I'm going to send it to producer Gail Ann Hurd, who had just produced Aliens and Terminator. She read it, liked it, and it was and it was literally the first meeting I had out of film school about bad dreams. We talked for about 90 minutes. We both had a lot to say. She's very intelligent and asked the right kind of questions. However, I remember it being a very intense meeting. She said, okay, let's make a movie, which is an extraordinary thing to have happened coming out of film school and to have that happen to you. So... I directed it when I was 24 and I think it's crazy to think that someone gave me millions of dollars to make a movie for 20th Century Fox. It's extraordinary, to be honest. Yep. I mean, that's insane. Uh, so he goes on to talk about taking advice from legendary actor James Cameron. Jimmy! Uh, yeah. <laughs> Is that the cat? Yeah, he had a kitty yeah, cat. He, he, <laughs> he wormed his way in and every time I was about to fucking, he would start meowing at me. I didn't want it to get picked up. So, <laughs> All right. so Andrew goes on to talk about taking advice from uh, legendary film director James Cameron. Uh, He says, I got to meet Jim Cameron many times on set. Uh, Actually, I spent quite a fair bit of time around him uh, and he was writing and preparing for The Abyss. Ah. Hmm. He read my script and he complimented me on it uh, and it was very disarming. He was a very nice person to me and he is one of the few people who took me aside and mentored me a little bit. He came to the set. He watched a couple of clips of Bad Dreams. He was making suggestions. He actually said to me that it was better than his first film and I just really appreciated him being around immensely. Imagine getting that as a compliment from James Cameron. Andrew's talking about hiring Richard Lynch. So we kept trying to think of who could have had that kind of mystique about him, who was charismatic enough to lead a cult. We talked to a lot of people. Richard just came in and he has that gravitas about him. And the fact that he at one point in his life had been a burn victim lent it a weirdness. So that that was hard to resist. Uh, In fact, one day he... He was in makeup. There's this practical effect of fresh, full burns. And the first day that he had to wear that, he was sitting in his trailer and we were waiting for him. So I knocked on the door. We went in and he was just sitting there staring at himself in the mirror. And he said, this is totally freaking me out. <laughs> However, a few minutes later, he came out and was joking around. Makeup was so pretty full on. Really good. Yeah. <laughs> really well done. I could definitely see how it messed with him. So Andrew then talks about shooting uh, a brutal death scene. Says there was this one scene where Susan Rutten's character kills herself by jumping out of a window and we were shooting at a real hospital. There's a medical section and a mental ward essentially across the street. What a place to shoot this. Ooh. So we did this one shot where the camera approaches the window 
window, tilts down to reveal the body on the sidewalk. And good because shot. that shot was so wide, it is a good shot. We couldn't have movie trucks to block it. So we were up on the sixth or seventh floor shooting down. And some of the mental patients across the street saw this actress that looks like she had killed herself, apparently. And some of them got extremely agitated. Yeah, no wonder. <laughs> 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 Damn! <laughs> it's and it's funny because when he talks about it in the interview, he's like laughing about it. It's, yeah. It just makes the story even more funny when you hear oh, it come shit. from him. Uh. Um, so yeah, we uh, we have Andrews talking about the struggle of uh, the MPAA. So the MPAA has never been too kind to me. They gave it an X rating. I can definitely fucking see why. <laughs> and we made little adjustments here and there. Never really cut out anything serious, but just had to snip these little bits here and there. They eventually gave us an R, but it was definitely a struggle. Yeah, that fire sequence was really intense. And you could definitely see where there might have been parts where it could have been even more intense. Fuck it. Well, there's kids and shit being burnt alive. They're all teenagers. They're like 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds in the house. But there is a specific shot of kids getting burned, so. Yeah. It's a little, it's a little out there, <laughs> a little full on. Um, there's, there's actually a real life story that's very similar to it. If this had come out in like '94, it may have not even been proved at all. At least in like Canada, uh, I can talk about that more later. But uh, so similarly to the struggles that Andrew had had with the MPAA in the United States, upon its video release in the UK, uh, in order for the film to receive the 18 certificate, it had to be cut down by only 22 seconds. But it was to remove the close-up shots of the self mutilation uh, by knife and scalpel uh, that old Ralphie boy does, as well as it slightly reduces uh, the scene where a man is struck repeatedly by a car, uh, which I will definitely touch back upon later. <laughs> that one was not as rough. I really don't know why they had to cut that one. <laughs> like, it really wasn't that bad. Um, but later in 2018, uh, these cuts were waived by the BBFC and they were allowed to appear in the DVD Blu-ray release for the UK. You know, it's funny, that movie I watched today, Censor, the uh, main character, is a girl that works at the uh, BBFC and she is oh. the one who writes the notes of the video nasties so the whole movie plays out and it's kind of like a uh commentary on the video nasty craze at the time that happened you know during the 80s with uh what is it margaret Thra- thatcher going around yes. saying this is bad this is bad this is destroying our society so that movie kind of explores that aspect so it's cool that, that, that we bring this up here especially on the same day that i watched censored uh because it shows it shows like this whole building of the just rooms of these people just watching movies and writing notes of like this is okay this isn't okay and they really controlled what was allowed in society at that time it's it's just interesting to see like anytime anything bad was happened the first place that they would point was oh it's the movie's fault just Hmm. yeah i wonder how many people signed on for that job just going ha i'm now i'm gonna get to see all the movies before they come and it's it's, they actually address that situation in the movie really just a quick sidebar uh there's a scene where she's sitting with her parents and you're like you watch any good movies lately and she's like mom i'm not there to do that i'm protecting the the british civilians like that's how it was her perspective of like i'm not watching movies to review them i'm protecting people from these movies Hmm. again her perspective changes throughout the film but it's just absurd in the way that they have this main story tie in and everything to that censor uh character is just so so fantastic and again i highly recommend anybody who's a fan of jallo movies or even lynch vibes it's it's cool shit continuing on with uh bad dreams so we have andrews talking about watching his own film goes on to say to be honest when the movie was done i wasn't really happy with it i wasn't happy with my 
work and I didn't watch for decades, but I finally watched it and thought, you know what? It's actually not that bad. It's silly, but there's some creepy and seriousness about it. I do remember seeing it for the first time with the public in New York at Times Square. It was an amazing experience because the theater was full and the audience was just screaming at the screen. It was the best way to see the movie. I must have. That must have felt great. <laughs> Can I just quickly add something to this? Yeah. And I forgot to mention it before we did the notes. Edward Samuelson, he's the interviewer. Really? It, yeah. it says in the credits, Edward Samuelson. So, yeah, shout out to Eddie. Edwin worked on the Jason Goes to Hell doc with Adam Marcus. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he also works for Scream Factory. He primarily shoots all their featurettes. Hell yeah. That's awesome. All right. And... Finally, it has to be mentioned. Andrew talks about choosing a song for the film. Says it was down to Burning House of Love by the band called X. And this song, uh, you may have heard of it, called Sweet Child of Mine. Ultimately, I went with Sweet Child of Mine because it was a little catchier. uh, And we made the deal as the song went into the movie. And literally a few weeks later, the song just started shooting up in the charts and it became the number one single in the country. In the meantime, before it did hit number one, uh, Guns N' Roses watched the movie and they were excited by it. They wanted to do a video featuring clips from the movie, uh, but then their star took off. And I've heard that the girl that the song was about uh, said they had to do a video that features her or is about her and not a movie clip. Um, I did read a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, it was it was uh, Axl Rose's girlfriend at the time. And she was like, no, make the movie. Make make it about me. Um, <laughs> we, we well, what could have been? Well, we could have got uh, like selfish. A, we could have got like a, something similar to the Hellraiser music video. Yeah, that would have been a sick music video for this song too. Um, and I think because they uh, they had got it before that song took off as well, if I remember correctly, yeah, Andrew said that they, their licensing. I think he said that they only paid a few cents for it. I think I genuinely think he said something like fifty something cents. <laughs> for the licensing to use it. Well, boys, let's get into the thick of it and let's talk about it! Favorite performance of the film, Brody? Take it away. I've actually written it in me fucking notes. Richard Franklin. (laughs) No! Fuck me. Um, well, there you go. Spoiler, Richard Lynch, yes. not Franklin. Um, you know, just for him to even step into a role uh, that, you know, really reflects his past is actually pretty fucking haunting, but also amazing to see, I find. Um you know, he definitely captures that realism of this character to what I believe is believable and intimidating for this cult fucking leader. Um, you know, he just chews up each scene and, and every scene that he's involved in. He, um, the, the biggest thing with, uh, Mr. Lynch, he has a way with words, I find. A cadence. Um, with the way he says. Yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. The way his politeness about it, it really sucks you in. Uh, I just can't take my eyes off the screen every time he's involved. He's even when he's in full burn makeup, he's just a fucking haunting presence of like. And, and I also think that comes into not only his physical acting, but obviously the makeup. But yeah, overall, I just think that he was a perfect choice. I can definitely see him as a cult leader. Um, yeah, I just, I was actually so fucking impressed with his. I I do, I do believe this, this is probably his strongest performance in my eyes that I've seen so far. So Nick, I uh, am 
actually probably going to go with Jennifer Rubin um, as Cynthia. <laughs> so uh, I actually really did enjoy her performance. Um, it, it really came off as believable, um, even for what could probably not be a particularly believable circumstance of being in a coma for 13 years and coming out not, you know, on life support permanently. Uh, but like the, you know, oh, I'm still, I'm, I mean, I'm still normal and everything. I don't know why I'm in, you know, borderline personality uh, group or anything. And then just kind of the slow unraveling as, um, oh, what's his name? Dr. Beresford's drugs start to take hold. Uh, and then she just starts to become Spoiler more and more alert! unhinged, uh, but never overboard, like never too far that it's like, okay, well now my like suspension of disbelief is just gone because yeah. people don't act like this. Like that sort of, that sort of line I think is kind of hard. Um, to hit and I think she did it really well um, it probably also helped that she was in Dream Warriors the year before this so so just to be different and expand the content I'm gonna have to agree with Brody with Lynch but also say that Ralph deserves a mention only because there's a clear character progression with him and he goes from being an unlikable dick to a to somebody you can kind of sort of sympathize with by the time you realize this guy's off his meds and he can't control what he's doing uh, his, his death was especially gruesome especially seeing that it's a uh, kind of full-on, on-screen, I'm-gonna-kill-myself type scenario. Uh, yeah, just super impactful death. I just think that, that his performance and the way that he delivers his comedy is super effective, uh, especially that one scene whenever the girl talks about, you know, the gods and stuff, and, like, he's coming, and she's like, you know, well, and he's like, you know, I was thinking about the same thing, too! <laughs> and it was just, like, yeah. just funny stuff. It's, it's the little quips and stuff that he says that just definitely helps elevate his performance in this movie. And to know that it was improvised, considering that, you know, he was a comedian before it and he was like i'm just gonna say funny shit <laughs> like, i'm just gonna be a you know a comic relief and then it came off that well because i agree with you tj like he start that's the growth over it because we were talking about this earlier uh today the first few lines i like instantly hated him and then just grew to actually like him over the course of the movie uh up until you know his death yeah what does he say before he dies there's this he says something like radical or no what is it oh shit i can't fucking remember it's, yeah i i just remember the 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 cop going put the knives down and he goes knives these are precise surgical instruments <laughs> so wait, can i just say something about that fucking cop he was an asshole he just he didn't was. he was the worst cop now <laughs> no one can i ask a question this this movie is very self-aware right uh mm. with that being said do you think that they purposely wrote the cops to be inept or to act that way to go with this the story the way that it is i suppose i can see it because like the the first thing would be after it's a trope with slasher films films and that's just that's just why i say it because by by this time it's 88 so all the tropes have really set right. in by this time so the, the the trope of the inept police to enable the killer is just the way that the, you know the, they progress stories back it in this time works yeah that's just you know. right i guess i could see it i mean like the first thing we see of him really showing just how bad he is uh Cynthia coming out of, you know, having her episode in the middle of therapy and then being like, no, 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 no. It was a mass suicide from a cult. And the cop goes, oh, I don't know. I don't believe it. I did. She only survived this house fire or whatever. Well, she did it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, why are you saying this to a patient in the mental hospital? Like, you're a shitty cop, dude. And then the scene on the roof, he, you know, he has two suspects and he turns around and opens his gun in his holster to one of said suspects. And then whenever <laughs> the dude gets thrown off, he's like, okay, fuck this. Come back. Huh. <laughs> Doesn't question it doesn't stop nothing he is the worst cop <laughs> i guess that goes back to what andrew was saying earlier in the notes where 
he wanted to be this comedy director and yeah. maybe he was trying to influence him to be a comedic relief throughout yeah. the film. Like I the black comedy. Like, cause he, like I actually laughed at that end scene. He's like, oh, fuck this. I'm over it. He yeah. just pushed him off the fucking roof. Like, <laughs> it's, it's like an Edgar Wright movie. Like it's a hot yeah. fuzz. <laughs> and that, yeah, the, I think that the comedy always helps, especially break up some of these more serious scenes uh, with burn face. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely yeah. alleviate some of the more serious tones that we'll talk about later with uh, mental health and just the cult. And yeah, it's it's serious stuff. But favorite set piece, I'll start this one off, boys, and just say the house, the cult house, is mm. is almost just the way structurally it's reminiscent of the psycho house just because of the way it's styled and then yeah. the interiors is just so 70s psychedelic that it's really believable to be like you know this cult house for that time period brody you just took the words out of my mouth what i had in my notes you just fucking pretty much said <laughs> i will just say yeah just the vision of the house on the hill you know it's that dark mysterious i love the landscape it's just yeah. so yeah, landscape so isolated in the middle of fucking nowhere. It's just, yeah, I mean, I can't really explain, uh, explore much more on it. Like you pretty much said, the interior is fucking fantastic. Um, especially when they light themselves on fire, that's fucking brutal. Um, fuck, I cannot think of anything else. You just summed it up perfect. What about you, Nick? So, uh, obviously, yeah, I am going to have to agree. Um, with that, I had a slightly different take on it just because of the almost sort of normalcy that landscape and everything, um, outside, like you mentioned, Brody, it reminds me of, um, like an Andrew Wyeth painting. Um, if probably the most famous one, if you've ever deaf have to have seen it, it's that like little house on the prairie type on the hill and all the wheat with the like girl laying down uh in the grass in front of it painting yeah. who's the artist uh andrew wyeth w uh w-y-e-t-h um something someone's world catherine's world or something like that is the name of the painting it reminds me of that it's like so picturesque almost yeah that's it yeah yeah uh like it reminds me of that painting in this weird sort of picturesque on the outskirt uh, on the outside like calm especially in this in the, her vision um whenever cynthia gets knocked off off and she gets like transported back there mm -hmm. it does that cut to her lying uh on the front lawn and everything for it and it's all like picturesque but you know like all the dark shit that happened in there at the beginning of the film well thank you for answering the next question which is favorite scene or shot uh <laughs> <laughs> i mean <laughs> uh i yeah i guess that yeah that probably was my what's, favorite that is the one that stuck with me the most what's that transition shot where she's in the house she's in the lot she's yeah. in the Locker room and it goes yes! from the yes. interior yes. locker room to the fucking. I have that same, yes, dude. Same shot. Oh, so yeah. fucking uh, well done. And it's so easy to fucking do. Like, all you need is l proper lighting and those lockers, and you can dolly that shit forward to reveal that. I thought that was fucking executed so well, but I'll elaborate a little bit more. On that. Hitchcock would but be just proud. to just to touch back on set piece real quick, uh, just to compare this film to Nightmare on Elm Street three real quickly without heavily waning on it, uh, as far as set wise, that film with Nightmare on Elm Street three, I feel like the mental health ward, like the hospital setting, feels more locked down and contained, and those people are far more out of control than this film feels. I feel like the the setting feels more laxed. And that these people have more freedoms within that mental health ward. It just feels more like, more comfortable of a setting, more like an office building. And I know that this was filmed in an actual hospital, so it's an actual real set. It's just, when you look at the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 one, it seems like it's almost more like a prison type mental health setting. The um, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 
reminds me a bit more of like the prison from um, HBO show Oz. Like it reminds me of that like supermax almost kind of style mm. of how they're all penned in. This feels like a hospital, whereas that does it, like it feels like a prison. You know, it's just like in that movie, I believe like they, they're locked in their rooms and shit. And like here, like there's there's a couple having sex and stuff. So like they're they're clearly more lax mm. than let's say what's what's uh, Lawrence Fishburne's character is in the other film where he's more or you know like get this shit done take your meds and stuff like that i don't know i i just noticed noticed that that this this film is a little bit more lax on the way it presents the mental health ward i think it helps overall with the film um it definitely just helps the establishment of shots there's more of a continuity to it you can believe you know that those two patients went off and had sex and got meat grindered and to talk about (laughs) talk about shot uh or scene We, we talked about that dolly shot but like one shot that was repeatedly shown was the meeting room and as the story progressed how less and less people were in that meeting room and it was the same shot it felt more open yeah so, like wide so as people died they showed the same shot of like the room where they had all the meetings and they talked about their feelings and they showed the same one but every time it would just have less people in it and they got to the point where ralph's like what the fuck is going on because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nobody's left in the room that was <laughs> just him chilling and cynthia exactly yeah. anything else we want to elaborate on in scene or shot brody Oh yeah, well I mean uh well I had a I had like at least two favorite scenes in this film. Um I've obviously mentioned my favorite shot, but you know, uh I look I have to mention these two cuz they resonate with me. Well, not resonate with me, but I they stood out to me. Uh you know, it's one when we see Richard Lynch. <laughs> fuck I've fucking written it again as Franklin. Richard Lynch's character in the elevator tormenting Cynthia as the light flickers on and off. I think that's really fucking cool how when it cuts in and out, you know, you get his normal self to his burnt self, just swapping in and out of his burns. It's a, you know, just, and being in that tight space of an elevator is just, just claustrophobia. So. The payoff is on point for that. And I'll just quickly mention um, when he does that great monologue speech uh, in the flashback scene when Mm -hmm. he's inside the the house and then he sets everyone on fire. It's just fucking brutal. Yeah. It's fucking sinister. Mm -hmm. And you see it. You see these fucking teenagers, adults on fire, hugging them, their families and- and then you just see Richard there himself up in flames, still speaking this monologue. It's fucking next level. I mean, I even like the. Uh, yeah, uh, sorry, <laughs> no, I, was saying, I, I even like the uh, the establishing shot of the outside of it with the baby crying. Like, because again, this is my first time seeing it, but I didn't quite even realize that he was, you know, pouring gas on people's heads. But uh, the moment it went to that exterior shot, and I could hear the baby crying, I was like, "This house is about to burn down." Is it? Yep. <laughs> yep, there it goes. <laughs> and the glow started up in the windows. But like, it just man, it. it even hit then and that was just an exterior shot before you see and you actually get like the intimate knowledge of everything that happened Mm -hmm. inside during it they usually say less is more but after seeing it fucking hell like this (laughs) is just fucking yeah brutal transitions into favorite effect and death I'd say. Uh, again, that fucking house scene when all those people burn up, that effect is well done. And then the way that Lynch transforms from cult leader into burn boy is, again, exceptional. And just everything about that scene is just cringe-inducing and effective as fuck. Not to, and honorable mention to Ralph's death and him stabbing himself with the precision surgical instruments in the gut. Can I go I ahead and say that that one was my favorite death? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although Ed and Connie's death was pretty fucking uh, beautiful. Yeah. Fucking beautiful. 
I don't see him die, but, you know, lots of blood and body parts and just that the sprinklers shooting blood over the fucking hallways is just the cherry on top. It's beautiful. Metal as shit, dude. (laughs) I loved the, uh, (laughs) I felt bad for him, but I loved the, uh, the duct worker going up to open the hatch and then just getting drenched in blood and seeing the hands and stuff and everything fall. He's like, what the hell? (laughs) That hand looks like it was a leftover from Tales from the Crypt. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. it does. It does. really I, I i wanted the fucking uh hospital speakers to start play slayer at raining oh man and another edit thoughts on story yeah. boys who wants to start us off oh i will start off and i'll just i'll just say look i can separate the fact that this definitely feels like a nightmare in elm street film but yet i can enjoy it every time i watch it i think that the characters are flushed out enough uh throughout the storytelling um that there is a lot of characters there that need to be spoken about and I think this film executes that pretty well um I think the twist at the end was a little bit of a letdown. You could kind of see that coming um, because they, you could definitely feel throughout the film they really wanted to catch the realism of these patients with mental health and all that. And then it's only, yeah, I mean, yes, you can see visions of this supposedly supernatural force, but then when the fight, when the twist comes around, you're like, yeah, I could definitely see that coming. Was it was didn't have really much punch about it, you know, to me anyway. Um, but you know, overall, it it still feels like its own film, and it serves its purpose, and it sets out to be what it is, a and just a exploitative gore fest. It's enjoyable. Yeah, it's it's definitely a fun time. Um, I'd say I I guess I can see you know I I can of course see the similar similarities to Dream Warriors, but I was saying this to TJ earlier. Um, today was it almost felt more to me like a horror movie version of The Breakfast Club with the mm. overall just sort of um just cast of characters. Uh, TJ, you say you know it's the '80s thing. It's they have to have that John Hughes yeah. cast of characters <laughs> to go through, but like. Like, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And then as it ramped up, it felt more and more a bit like Dream Warriors. Um, I think, honestly, it would have had more bite had that bit at the end where Cynthia goes over the railing and you think that she has actually hit the ground and died. If that had been real, I think it actually probably would have made the movie a bit better. Um, to just, I mean, it, it you know, it, it would have actually felt like the stakes would have gone through and not just drugs are bad and will make you die and the adults want to kill the teenagers. Um, I, I read just to kind of see sort of the overall reception and see if anyone had anything else to say about the movie other than it's Dream Warriors and it's not as good. I read through Roger Ebert's and his like main point was he felt that the movie felt hypocritical. Um, and I guess just, I can't agree with it entirely, but I did kind of understand his point of uh, it didn't feel really like there was a lot of bite. Uh, all the main characters aside from this one who has plot armor die. And then when you think, oh shit, oh, she actually died. Oh my God, it might be real. She's going up to Richard Lynch at the top of the stairs. She's returning home. Oh, it was a vision. Like that, that I can agree with. I didn't really like that aspect of it, but the rest of it felt good. It was a really enjoyable movie. To, um, and I didn't think that the similarities to Dream Warriors or anything like that took away from it, really. It just, it's just a piece 
of its time in cinema. I agree. So to expand a little bit more on that, uh, anytime I think of cult suicide or anything, I always like to reference my favorite X-Files episode. Of course, Brody's heard this multiple times. Uh, mm-hmm. Season four, episode five, The Field Where I Died. One of my favorite all-time episodes of the X-Files involves a doomsday religious cult and the Civil War and flashbacks. It is, anytime I see this film, it always reminds me that, fuck, I need to watch that X-Files episode again because it's because ro- it fucking rocks. But yeah, I just wanted to always mention that. So if you guys have the availability to watch X-Files, watch that episode. But yeah, but talking about this movie and, you know, we compare it to Dream Warriors and where Dream Warriors is based more in, again, dreams and nightmares. This movie is more based in reality and the fact that cults and at the time were a thing and mass suicide is a harsh reality of cults. And then to have this based in mental health as a person who works in the field and in honesty experiences and has dealt with his own fair share of mental health issues, this movie drives it home and does a good job at showing you these people's struggles and if you take the wrong medication, how it could affect you in a negative way. I think you Using that as a plot device and having that as a twist at the end that the doctor was feeding him them the wrong meds in order to progress his study. It it shows not only the failure of modern medicine at certain points, but how serious things can be if you don't get the right treatment. And you can see with Ralph's reaction, well, intense reaction, and then the others, just the suicides. It's it's crazy, and it all becomes apparent at the end. And then the way that they show her trauma in dealing with, I dealt with this when I was a kid, and I'm dealing with it again now, and it's showing her delusions over top of this doctor who's also currently tormenting her, and her having to go through trauma once again not necessarily the same thing but where she has to witness these people die it's just the duality of it is just so excellent and yes the ending kind of hampers like he like nick said the bite over the overall film but i think that there's some serious themes here that are rooted in reality where the nightmare on elm street series is more based in fantasy and it honestly around this time after this the nightmare on elm street franchise goes full-on fucking mtv so that's my thoughts and story. This is more oh, yeah, real. No bed at all. Oh yeah. Um, I, I will say um, one. The reporter. I can't remember what her was. Um, like the, the reporter, reporter. Jumped, Yeah. Yeah, that jumped out. The, um, I will say that it did. I think lend very well to her death. The ending. The discovery that you know it was Doctor Beresford's drugs and not. Oh well, we the audience know that. Ah. Uh, Richard Lynch Harris is back so obviously you know whenever she jumps out the window and dies and Cynthia's like no 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 she wouldn't have just done that uh it's it's Harris he's it's back he's back you know and all that and they and they just kind of go well she was she was here why do you think she was here yeah she'd already attempted that multiple times that's why she was here it's not exactly shocking and in the end you find out it's yeah sometimes it's not supernatural it's just a sad fact of life yeah. i think it's pretty fucked that every time that person used his inhaler he was getting fucked up like out of it like unbelievable <laughs> like that's yeah yeah just even thinking about that for a second but impact and takeaways boys i mean if this film 1988 slasher uh cycles heavy and swing right now i think that honestly 87 slumber party massacre 2 came out as well right so that's another nightmare dream killer type thing i think it just it coming out at this time period just really dampened the effect and the impact that it would have had on society and the fact that the reviews came out and they're like oh my god this is dream warriors i mean that's just that's just 
the cold hard fact about it is that people are always going to forever look at this movie as a Dream Warriors ripoff. Brody? Well, my takeaway from this film is just don't join a cult. Fucking simple. <laughs> but nah, like, I mean, look, for a first-time director on a big production like this, uh, you know, he's actually executed a pretty darn well fucking yeah. film. Like, it's, it, it's, yeah, I mean- I would never have known that this was his first feature film. Impossible. You know? It's to actually presented. Mm. Yeah, it's presented like a true professional, mm-hmm. uh, and he had a chance and the balls to take it on and prove himself as a fantastic director. In How the old end. was he? Twenty four. You said. Yeah. Twenty four. I'm so the youngest of the like, three of us, and he's younger than me at point. That's like Adam Marcus level. I, I was about to fucking say that you beat me to the punch. <laughs> but in saying that, yes. Um, I mean, Andrew Fleming, hats off to the man himself. He was able to create a beautiful vision. Um, obviously, yeah, the story is great. Um, I mean, yeah, a fantastic film of the 80s, a great slasher film. And for all you horror and gore hounds out there, this is definitely one for you. Um, it, yeah, I can definitely see why it had an X rating at one point. If you can look beyond mm-hmm. the comparisons to other franchises at the, at the at the time, and you can look for the stuff that we mentioned about, I think that you can appreciate this film better. Just look for the things yes. that make it special. Yeah, I, I definitely feel that its themes um, are important. Yes. Um, they are definitely well executed, I actually think. I, I do agree with TJ on that. I do think that they were well executed. Um, I think, yeah, it, it is a victim of the time that it came out. It is a product of the late 80s. Um, and just the fact that its reception was the way that it was is just because it was similar to other movies at the time. Um, but I mean, it couldn't really help it. Plus, it is his first film, but he's, it's, he's, you know, Andrew made a good movie for his first film. Um, I think that the acting definitely helped. Um, we have had some films that we've done so far where I've just had moments where I went, people do not do that. <laughs> people do not act like that. But like this one, I never had any point like that. I think it was extremely well acted. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it just, yeah, it just suffered from the year that it came out. If this had come out in 86 and not 88, there's a potential that yeah. Dream Warriors would have come out and they would have been like, they're ripping off bad dreams for exactly. the new Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Like, <laughs> so I, I, I think, yeah, that's a possibility in an alternate universe. Um, and I think it probably did help that it had the production crew as well that it did. Yeah. Um, I mean, it had the producer of Terminator and Aliens and all of that, you know, behind it. And I think it just had a good team of people. Um, and I think they just did a, did a really good job. I think it's definitely very underappreciated. Okay, so that's enough about the film. Let's rate this bad boy. So this week's rating is Badly Burned Pyromaniac Cult Leader Ghosts out of five. Brody, what's your score, you filthy whore? I'll give it a 3.9. Fucking A, that's higher than me. Nick? 3.7. I'm gonna give this a solid three. That is an LCE score of 3.5 out of five for 1988's Bad Dreams. Thank you for listening to this episode. Brody, what's next episode? Uh, that's a good question. Hang on. What is our next episode? It's, it's not up here. Isn't it a Nick pick? Is it mine? Is it Old Boy? It's Old Boy. Okay. All right. Mm. All right. Yeah. That one's going to be really fun. So we're God, going I to Japan or Korea? Korea. South Korea. Korea. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for 2003s, am I correct? Old Boy. Yes. Can't wait to talk that film with you boys and all the sweet, sweet shots that film has. But until then, this is the Pod oh. Boss, TJ Bowser. Signing off. This is your doppelganger, Kanga Bang, all the way from down under saying, I'll catch you motherfuckers next week. Slick Nick saying, see you guys next week. Love you as always. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoy next week's too.
Fucking hell, this thing's been a cunt. Hang on. Uh, hiring there Richard. Yeah. So uh, Andrews uh, talks about hiring the one, the only fucking Richard Franklin. Uh, we kept trying to think of who could have had that kind of mystique about them, who nope. is charismatic nope. enough nope. to lead a cult. Richard Lynch, you son of a bitch. You did it again. Franklin. You were Franklin again. You did it again. <laughs> oh. I actually wrote Richard yeah, Franklin. You actually I didn't wrote even catch Richard that Franklin the this time. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Franklin directed yeah. Link, Brody. <laughs> I really want to do a Richard Franklin film. I just need to cross, It's just subconsciously coming out. <laughs> it's like, please. Holy fuck. Well, I do oh, apologize. I do that's apologize. Amazing. I didn't do apologize for that. Going. That was great. And I can't the- believe I even wrote it. <laughs> I can't, I can't believe I even wrote Franklin. What the fuck? Let me just double check that there's no more Franklin. <laughs> okay, that's it's the like only place that it says his name. Okay. So we'll try that again with, with a clap cue. We still have to talk about it in our notes, so I could fuck that up too. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Oh. 